We're back with our podcast. Been a long couple months. I think the last time we got together was in March. A little, uh, little hiatus there. Yeah, this is pre, pre-baby for our family. This is pre-coronavirus for all of us. This is pre... A lot of stuff happened. Yeah, so. it's pretty good. I, get, I had a birthday in July. Alex had a birthday in July. I had nothing. I you just, just didn't have a birthday? I just stayed home and worked. Oh, remodeling our house. Doing that all downstairs all at once. It's uh, been living with the parents for the last couple of weeks. It's been interesting. That's Speaking of... Good, uh, good choice of words. Interesting. Speaking of birthdays, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot, actually, now that you mentioned it. Every time a year in our life goes by, we tend to learn a lot of important lessons from Jesus, from Scripture. What's one thing that you think stuck to you that you realized about yourself that you want to change or do better this year? Not like a New Year's resolution, but what is one thing that changed with you? And if you want time to think, I got one lined up, so... Um, interesting thought. I was thinking about it more actually after our Bible study yesterday, um, as far as doing the Bible study itself is to do more personal studies because, um, I do Bible study for our couples and also we do it kind of in a sort of Bible study here, uh, type of method where we look at, look at it and try to pick it apart and see what it actually says. Um, but I would, just realizing it from yesterday's session, how good it went and how awesome it was. I was like, man, I got to do this more with my personal life and pick different Bible passages and do it, you know, go through the different methods of, or the different steps of hermeneutics and dive deep. For me, that was like a, a big thing and just focusing more on studying and reading. You know, I love that you brought that up because we didn't even talk about this, honestly. And that's exactly what I got out of it is... One thing I learned this year that went by, and uh, to some people can say, well, it's kind of sad that you just learned this. I mean, I've been a Christian how long? Uh, but I guess what, what really came to me, to my mind, is you need to, as a person, read Scripture, study it on your own, study it with your wife, study it with your family, and listen to sermons, listen to different sermons, different opinions, compare things, and then always go back to scripture to reference what you're trying to compare. Um, because being brought up that many of us have been brought up here, I think, in a Christian family where oftentimes our faith, our belief comes from everybody that's around us and what they say, uh, what different preachers at churches say. And we don't oftentimes take the time to actually dive into scripture ourselves. Um, that's kind of coming from my personal side. I know that a lot of opinions, a lot of things that I thought were of what people said, of what people preached. Um, and I kind of got my view of Jesus. A lot of the view of Jesus is from what people preached. But I, I didn't go into detail and study scripture. And I think when we started studying as couples, um, I think this may be a mini revelation for all of us. I think we realized there's so much detail in just the book of Luke that you learn, that you understand, and just how much more you understand Jesus is is just amazing. And um, when I talked with some of the people that just got baptized here last couple of weeks ago, um, the the number one thing that I advised was 
the same concept. Read your Bible, understand it. We don't realize how important it is until we start reading it and these new things open up and then our, our opinions start changing and then we start getting so much information that we're like, well, I, I thought I thought wrong this whole time, you know? And if we don't do that reading, if we don't do that studying, we don't see Jesus for who he is, for how he did things. We just see what others told us. Um, we can't be sheep, you know? We can't be sheep uh, just because somebody on the news tells us to, you know, wear a surgical mask when we do everything, including driving in our car and wear gloves. Sleeping in bed. Yeah, it's do your own study to get what you need to get out of things. Don't just listen to everybody. I think that just goes to what you said, Mark. That's kind of when one thing I got out of it is what I want to do this year is really uh, jump into scripture. And what no better way than to run a podcast and talk with your friends. We know we started the book of Jonah. Um, it's funny, just, how, funny how we admit that we don't know much about scripture. Yeah. Hey, guys. We're here to tell you about scripture. <laughs> <laughs> totally not controversial. Contradictory. Um, we know we know a little bit, but I think uh, God is behind driving whatever we want to do here. So that's what we're hoping for. If I can talk real quickly about what you were mentioning too, and I think one of the things is, like you said, to read. Um, but I think the biggest point for me is also that the Bible is the ultimate authority. Um, there are people. We're all humans. We all make mistakes. Um, even I make mistakes occasionally. Uh, that was a joke, but um, occasionally, yep. Yes. Um, so I, I think my mindset um, has always been to test everything. So if you hear somebody say something, test it. See if it backs. If like what they say is actually backed up by scripture. Same thing here. Anything we say regarding the Book of Jonah or other uh, passages in the Bible test it. Is it in context? Are we actually saying and referencing what we ought to be? Or are we not using the scripture correctly or not interpreting the scripture correctly? Clear example uh, happened a couple months ago now, but we are still hearing the protests and everything about it. We saw a video of a police officer having his knee on the neck of this guy. This guy is saying he can't breathe. We see all this on video, automatically we get these thoughts, well, this this cop is slowly killing this guy. Something needs to happen. Why is this happening? And then we unfortunately see what happens. You know, these people come up. I don't even know if they were ambulance or not. That's another story. But they all come up. They grab them. They put them on, you know, the, the walker. They put them in the uh, ambulance. They leave. And this video circulates absolutely everywhere. So now everybody law enforcement or not, has a professional opinion on what just happened. Um, and unfortunately, the news start pressing a bias. They start pushing this information that is not confirmed. But once you take your time, go dive into the story, and you read more about it, you quickly realize that the person that passed away, he was on like three different drugs. He was... Um, in a in a already a bad health situation. So all of these things piled up, right? And then this unfortunate death happened. And then you realize that what the cop was doing was in their rule book to do. And they do it all the time. They put the knee on, on people's necks to subdue them and it doesn't choke them. That just makes you hard for you to struggle and move out. So 
when you read into this, it's, it's there, but you don't know this until you start researching. Um, I know there's a lot to say about this, but I kind of want to bring that up because if, if you didn't look into all that, you would just have that one opinion that whatever the media was pushing is what happened, which the cop purposely killed this guy. So, um, a little bit with scripture, um, we hear a lot of things, but we have to go back to Bible. Like you said, get that, uh, get that concrete evidence, find it yourself, go into deeper. And, um, hopefully that'll give you a, the, the proper, you know, explanation to what happened. So that's why we're going to go into Jonah two today. Should we do a little recap? Yes. Uh, that, that example, I don't know if it's the best one, but I think context is key as far as, um, what's going on, uh, in the Bible and as well as in our lives and on the news. Even if you hear something or see something, don't necessarily, believe it just because you saw a 15 or 30 minute clip do you have the full context of the story and i think it was Toja, we kind of we had a really interesting uh time with our teens um in washington dc and we brought up like a different example you know where if you walk in and you see me throwing a shoe at alex um you're like what in the world's going on why are you throwing your shoes at alex but if you go back 10 or 15 seconds before that there's a big spider behind him and i'm trying to kill the spider not alex He's just in the way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I guess let's go ahead and we'll talk a little bit about Jonah. So just to bring everyone up to speed, uh, Jonah is a pretty common story uh, that most Christians are probably very familiar with. It's a story that's taught in Sunday school. Um, last time we talked about Jonah chapter one, and we talked about who Jonah was, uh, why he was fleeing from the presence of God. So the Lord, um, it doesn't give us much context in terms of specific time or reason as to what, how and why this happened. But we read that the Lord came to Jonah to tell him to arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up before me. And what does Jonah do? He gets up, and instead of going to Nineveh, he flees the complete opposite direction towards Tarshish to uh pretty much to run away from God, not just from what he wanted to do, but it says that uh, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It wasn't just his uh, task that he was running away from. He was trying to away, run away from God. And he was going to go to Joppa, and he went to Joppa to get on the ship and start sailing out to Tarshish. Big mistake. Big mistake, yes. Was it though? Um. But throughout the story, um, as he's sailing, God sends a huge storm onto the ship and all the sailors that were on it, they are terrified for their lives because they can't control. They think they're going to die. Everyone starts praying to their own God. Um, and then Jonah is sound asleep at the bottom of the ship, um, you know, as if nothing's going on. And they wake him up and tell him, hey, call out to your God. Maybe, maybe you know, just maybe your God can save us. And it turns out that they find out that he's actually fleeing from the Lord. And that is why they're in this, you know, life death type situation. And what they ended up doing eventually is Jonah tells them to throw him overboard to calm the storm. And they didn't want to do it first, but they did do it. And once the storm calmed, they realized that, you know, this is obviously an act of God. The man that they threw overboard wasn't was a god godly man 
And at the end of the chapter, they, it says that they uh, offered sacrifices and vows to the Lord. And so what that tells us is that even through Jonah's disobedience, uh, God was able to use his disobedience as a blessing, as a way of testimonying or witnessing or evangelizing, to use more common terms today, to convert others to follow God, you know, to make more believers for God by using his disobedience. So, which, you know, also tie, you know, touches on the subject of the sovereignty of God and his abounding mercy and grace for everyone. Um, and so here we are, Jonah is at, in chapter two, it says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And uh, the chapter, chapter one ends with that and that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Great fish. I thought it was a whale. Uh, it depends which translation you read. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, um, it just says fish. I think in New Testament it mentions whale. Well, but, Sunday school taught me it was a whale, so. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's relatively kind of general vague terms for some kind of marine animal. It doesn't really specify a specific f- species. But even at that, I don't, think it, I don't think it really matters what kind of fish it really was. The point is, is that this was showing that God was in control. He sent the fish uh, to you know, supposedly saved Jonah from drowning in, in the sea, which we're going to talk about as well. It's interesting. Um, me and all are reading a book called Cracking Old Testament Code, and it talks about different genres within Old Testament scriptures. Um, and we actually read something recently regarding um, omission and how the Bible specifically uses omission to drive a point and kind of like what Serge says is, you know, that's the point that, it doesn't specify the fish because that's that's not the point. The point is um, Jonah got swallowed by a uh, animal that lives in the water, kind of like a fish. It doesn't necessarily specify the species, how big it was. You know, sometimes, like I have a brother who's a fisherman, and he'd be like, ooh, how big was it? What's the girth on it? So he can calculate how much it weighed and stuff. So, But I think that that's kind of the point is it's the focus isn't on the fish. The focus is on Jonah. And up to this point, even um, it, like we were talking about last time, his disobedience and like he, he's a petulant child that's uh, purposely going against the Lord instead of asking for forgiveness there on the spot in the boat. He says, just throw me overboard. Um, so we see that the sailors that he was with, uh, I think when we, we touched on this the last podcast, but they seem to get into the situation quicker than Jonah even did. They were like, hey, look, you need to you need to pray to your God. And they, they were the one doing the sacrifice after, even though they were uh, pagans. pagans. Uh, it took a lot for Jonah to, to realize what's going on here. Uh, it, I feel like he knew what's going on, uh, maybe a stubborn heart, but we can get into that a little bit. I think we should get into chapter two, see what we can read. Let's do it. A uh, fairly short chapter, I think only 10 verses. Yeah, 10 verses. A lot to talk about, though. There's a lot of things that I think that Jonah has in his prayer. Um, if you read this, you start understanding how much detail is actually in this, uh, just describing what he felt like. And we uh, talked about this earlier, how I think you just brought it up. It's important to kind of have this poetic description of what's going on. Because how else is a reader going to understand being in the tough place that he was? Whether whatever belly of animal, marine animal that he was in, 
how difficult it was. And I think he goes into detail of this to really put you into that picture. I think I will just read these 10 verses and uh, we can get in and talk about it. Verse, all right, chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon the holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Where do you guys want to begin? Talk about the fish. <laughs> How big was it exactly? <laughs> the Russian Bible says it was a keet, meaning whale. So it was a whale. I'm just now Jesus, Jesus said in King, King James chapter 12, verse 40. King James chapter 12. <laughs> I didn't know King James had a, a book in the Bible. <laughs> King James. Um, uh, he said in, cha- in chapter 12, verse 40, he compared himself to Jonah in the situation, three days, three nights, but he said a whale as well. I think if you look up the root word of the word whale, and whether it's Hebrew, it doesn't specify the whale that we know of today. It just means, like we mentioned earlier, a big marine animal. So um, here's the first thing that came to my head. And this is a question I feel like that everybody asks is, did Jonah die? Do we see evidence of Jonah dying? And both sides, whether yes or no, kind of have an argument. Uh, but I think... The more we read into it, we could probably just get to one argument and one answer, and that is probably not. Why? Where's your supporting scripture? Support your answer. What is the point of the fish? Why why the great animal swallow him if he was already in the water about to die? If indeed he did die, why did the whale swallow him? I think the whale swallowing him was a, a time for him, a last opportunity, that last moment of you need to wake up, you know, and we talked about Lord showing his power. I think the, the God had a plan for him, but he knew what what he needed. God knew what to do to, to kind of get to his heart. Now, we don't want to get into saying that God forced him to repent. That's not what we're saying here at all. I feel like uh, the, the chance, that opportunity, that situation was built up and the fish is there to save him from that last strand before death. Otherwise, he could have just fell into the water. Yeah, I think we can agree that God was trying to extend his grace and mercy to Jonah because there's so many examples in scripture where not a lot of people, you know, not everyone got that chance. There are some examples of scripture where you know, they've committed the sin and God literally allowed them to fall dead right then and there. 
Um, there are others that, you know, continue to live shortly after the fact for, you know, days, weeks, or years. And there's some that pretty much died of old age, but they've died in sin. And here, Jonah, you know, I think, I think last time uh, we talked about when he told them to throw him overboard, you know, he thought that he was still probably going to escape God that way, but allowed the sailors to live. I mean, he could have maybe easily told them, well, if you roll backwards, you know, back to land, you might, you will can, we can survive this back towards where I'm supposed to go. Although we, we did read that they did try to do that, but it was when Jonah was still sleeping, but that's just a hypothesis, right? And I think the same thing here is that Jonah maybe tried to continue to run away from the Lord uh, by not really committing suicide, but, you know, an attempt that, you know, if he jumps over, he's not going to survive this, but the sailors are going to survive. Um, and he won't have to go to Nineveh to preach, you know, the God, the gospel to those people. But at the same time, God's like, no, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to give you one more chance that you can stop what you're doing and turn back to me. And, you know, the, the scripture says that he was in there for three days and three nights. And chapter two is the prayer that he prayed in the belly of the fish. So I think it's, um, which, which is interesting because even when you start reading about his prayers, right, uh, in verse, uh, starting in verse five, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land where bars closed upon me forever. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, right? So he was, it seems like he is about to die, right? It seems like he got caught up in some weeds and he couldn't free himself. He started, probably started running out of breath and he started to pass out. But then it's interesting that he says, I remembered the Lord, right? It doesn't sound like God forced a memory into him to make him remember God, the Lord, right? Um, probably, you know, the circumstances that he was in probably triggered, maybe triggered something. Like you said, God, know, God knows everyone's hearts and he knows how to make us tick. But at the same time, when he started actually praying, I think, I think this whole prayer that he's praying here is, is in, in a way of, would you say, would you say that maybe it's in a way of a kind of a, like a repenting type prayer Though he never really says, I'm sorry. But he kind of realizes that, you know, his life was literally in God's, is in God's hands right then and there. What do you think? Um, it's interesting because I, when I was still in youth and I heard this one uh, guy say a sermon and randomly he just mentioned Jonah's prayer. Um, and he's like, he said um, one thing that was always interesting to me. He said, Jonah's, Jonah's prayer was not a prayer of repentance. Um, if you want to find out what it was about, read it. And that was it. And I was like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Um, and so kind of just thinking on those words, I went back and I did some studying in Jonah. Um, and I, I don't think that it was a prayer of repentance. I think this whole prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving and praise towards God. Um, the whole, anytime he mentions any sort of events, it's all in past tense before this prayer. Um, and I think that um, even when Jonah was... This, this is just my opinion, and I've already talked to a few different people about this, and not all of them agree with me, but I think that he was, he did pray a prayer of repentance. He mentions it uh, even in uh, the second verse. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
And then he goes on to describe what happened and how he came to this prayer. And he talks about how he was cast into the deep and kind of the passages that you read where the waves were billowing over him and he was wrapped in seaweed. I think that shows the fact that while he was drowning, um, and in my opinion, I think even in verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He was already at that point acceptant of his death, knowing that I'm being driven away from your sight, but yet again, I shall look upon your holy temple as in um, in the future tense in heaven, not necessarily. Uh, well, it could be construed in a different way too. But I think the whole, like my original thought um, was that he prayed while he was drowning and then this fish, which he was sitting in for three days, three nights, was actually God's answer to his prayer and his deliverance. Because he says in verse 2, that he answered him. Um, and he's thanking him, even though while he's in this fish, he's already thanking him for his salvation. Yeah, like, um, it's, it's interesting. I don't think he paid, I mean, God knows our hearts, right? When did he actually pray the prayer of repentance? I mean, obviously, we don't see him ever say, I'm sorry. But here, I agree. In verse 1, it says that he called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Was that a prayer of repentance? You know, we can't say for sure, but I think God saw his heart and he knew whether or not he really repented or not. But we do see that, you know, he says that I remembered the Lord, right, when his life was fainting away. So it wasn't until he was really, literally on the verge of death that he actually remembered the Lord. But he's in a fish right now. And right he, now, he, yes. he doesn't consider himself on the verge of death, even though he's in a fish for three days, three nights. I kind of want to go with what you said, Mark. I feel like that's a sign of faith in his prayer. Uh, faith is an important thing, and whether when it comes to salvation, when it comes to uh, everything we do in our Christian life, but seeing faith in a prayer is also kind of evidence of uh, him understanding what's going on here and uh, having that past tense and at the end saying that he will sacrifice to God. He will bring that voice of thanksgiving. He had that faith into that God had a plan for him and he's, he needs to straighten out and get to work. Is it, uh, do you think it's worth talking about Shoal uh, and what exactly that is and why he mentions it here, kind of? Yeah, so common misconception, I think very common. Well, it could technically, it's not proven. There's wrong, multiple definitions. Multiple it, definitions. But I think there's like one that's definitely agreed upon. Yeah. Talking about death. That. Yeah. Um, the Hebrew word shoal refers to the grave or the abode of the dead. Um, through much of Old Testament period, it was believed that all went to one place, whether human or animal, uh, whether righteous or wicked, and no one could avoid shoal, which thought to be down the lowest parts of the earth. Um, Jesus kind of brings this, brings uh, Jonah up like we spoke earlier in, in verse 40. Just like Jonah spent three days, three nights, that's how I will spend three days, three nights in the bottom of the earth. I'm not quoting the exact verse. I'm kind of just giving the runaround. But it it's a place between heaven or hell. Does that sound? It's, it's a place of, uh, from the research I've done, it's kind of like this intermediary place where, um, I don't want to say that the conscience or the soul goes awaiting till the final judgment or till they're called to heaven or hell, pretty much kind of, it's a place of 
of rest, darkness, silence type of place, like you said, the grave. Um, and I find it interesting that he actually mentioned it here. Um, I tried to find some some script, some texts about you know show and what you know what does the Bible say about it. First time we actually ever see it being mentioned was in Genesis chapter thirty-seven when Jacob mourns over his son Joseph. You know, once his brothers lied to him about it, covered up his, and told him that he actually died. Here's his clothes with blood. That's where it says that he's gonna, uh, that pretty much his mourning is gonna cause him to go into Sheol. Sheol pretty much is gonna, you know, he's gonna die from grievance, pretty much from the, the sadness about losing his son. That's the first time we actually encounter the word in scripture, and then it's mentioned over sixty times in the Old Testament alone. And there's some, um, like Mark said, there's some variations in terms of what it meant. Uh, some interpretation, not interpretations, but different translations are uh, usually it's cross-referenced with the term Hades or the pits, um, something like that. Not It's not necessarily hell because in hell is a place of suffering and it's not, and show is not ever mentioned or interpreted to be as a place of suffering. It's a place of kind of like waiting, kind of like a lobby room sort of from the research that I've done. I think depending on the context that it's being used yes. in, and that's where there's dif these different opinions about it. Yeah, there's a few verses where it's actually referenced or um, in, in context, it's actually described to be as hell, but for the majority part, it's not accepted to be hell, you know, again, depending on context. And here, I don't think, it doesn't seem to be in reference of hell, but we do know that some characteristics of Shoal, for example, like I've done um, some passages in scripture say, like in Psalm chapter six, verse five, David writes, for in death, there is no remembrance of you and Shoal, who will give you praise? So he's saying that we can't, you can't praise God from Shoal. There's nothing you can, you can't reach out to God and, uh, you know, once you die, after you die, and that's pretty much it. You're done. You had your chances. Um, another verse, uh, Psalm 115 uh, chapter 11, sorry, chapter 115, verse 11. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Psalm 115, verse 17 says, May you be blessed, sorry, verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. So it was a place of, it was a place of uh, silence, right? You don't, kind of like a lobby, right? Not You don't really talk in the lobby, you just kind of wait for the final job. Obviously, I think this is a place that's outside of the concept of time because um, we humans live in time. But, and, and, you know, once we die, there's no con there's no concept of time. And there's um, also another interesting con uh, aspect about Shoal that I found out. If you read Psalm 139, um, it's interesting that David talks a lot about Shoal because he he literally references his sufferings, his persecutions by his own family as if he was, you know, in Shoal. But in Psalm 139, uh, verse 8, uh, he says the following. Verse 8, he says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. So we cannot reach out to God from Shoal, but, at, but God can still reach into Shoal. It is not out of his reach because he's still there, interestingly enough. And I think what Jonah is saying here, that he's, uh, that I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Shoal. I cried. Uh, obviously, you know, we know that he's underwater. He's underground. 
and he's pretty much in the in a dark, cold, clammy place in the belly of a fish, uh, where there's silence. And I think he's making more of a reference point that it's either you know he was either like we mentioned he was either on the verge of death or you know he's about to die if you know if, if he didn't call out to God. I don't know if what was going through his head exactly at that time, but I think that's probably why he mentions Shoal here to kind of give this very vivid reference point of where he physically is kind of kind of is and hence this prayer of thanksgiving where he even though he is in such a place you know the fact that god still saved him is giving him another chance you know what can you do but give thanks to god i think um i agree and i think the the one thing that you were talking about um specifically about shoal is it's after death Right. Yeah. So it's not like death, but it's after death or it is the act. It's not it's not in the land of the living. We could just put it that way. Um, uh, And what I mentioned before is that if we talk about genres, um, prayers, especially this one right here, there's uh, they use a lot of descriptive language that's also somewhat poetic. So he wasn't like kind of like we say, you know, I was at death's doorstep. Death doesn't have a doorstep. You know, you're either dead or you're not. Um, and when God decides you die, that's when you die. But that's kind of what we say to kind of be a little bit more descriptive. And uh, just a few more examples here in verse five, where he says, the, or verse six, uh, he says, um, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. So if you were to do a literal translation, you're like, so he was at the root of a mountain, probably somewhere in a cave and there were bars that were closed. He was in a, like a dungeon where there were dwarves in the roof, in a mountain. Just kind of like, you know, if you look at it from a literal translation, but that's not what it was. He's using descriptive language here to kind of describe um, to what point he felt where he was. It's a, it's an emotional um, explanation of what he was feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's to, con- like you said, convey emotion or a specific message. It's not so much about the literal sense mm-hmm. here. Yeah. What do you think, Alex? You look like you're deep in it's thought. It's an interesting read. When he begins his prayer, um, or maybe in between his prayer, just going to verse 7, when my soul fainted within me. Um, Touching the word soul to bring forth the argument that Jonah did die. Um, We read in verse 5 as well, the waters compassed me about even to the soul. At least that's what it says in King James. I know in the ESV translation, it's a little bit different, but the thinking of the word soul is that's that's your last line. If God is touching you to that point, that's when you realize you need to stop. Um, and just showing this example that Jonah now is understanding, he, he realized, uh, he realized he's at the brink. He's at the end. Um, he realized what's going on. And I never thought about it like that, Mark, that you brought up that this is really not a repentance prayer. Now that I'm kind of starting to see that more and more, I, I feel like it is that Thanksgiving. He does understand and he he thanks God that he's been sacrificed. And now he wants to, um, he wants to bring sacrifice to God. And it's interesting. He says in verse nine, what I have vowed to you. Going back, what, what do you guys think that vow is talking about? 
Um, can I say something before we jump to verse nine? Yeah. Uh, it's like we're kind of jumping all over the place, um, which is good. Uh, verse three, uh, one thing that I've, you know, just realizing it over and over again, reading, um, he, there's two main subjects in his prayer, himself and God. He doesn't even mention the fish. He mentions that God saved him and he's always referencing either you or I. Um, and so verse three, I find it interesting for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. So he's saying they're all belonging to him that, and that this was an act of God. Um, in chapter one, we see that he clearly was the one said, throw me overboard. You know, this is the only way to save yourselves. Um, and once he was, and that's why I think um, this, he was still unrepentant up to that point, because in this prayer, it shows that he was still had the same mindset up until the point where he was at death's doorsteps or um, in the belly of shale. Does he actually cry out to God? Um, so just reading that, I was just like looking that there's this discourse that's going on between him and he acknowledges that God is sovereign in his life as well and that he takes care of every aspect of his life and that it was his work here to for him to be cast into the sea so that he could turn to God um, in repentance. When he says, verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. I, I'm kind of confused to see what, what he's saying in here. Uh, I'm driven away. Isn't he the, the, the one that drives away from the Lord's sight? Because it says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So I should, is he driven or is he driving himself? Or is this just a poetic for me verse four when i was reading about yet i shall again look upon your holy temple i thought it was in reference to kind of the jewish belief where we read read in the new testament and how christ talks to the different um pharisees and he, he tells them that um specifically talking about they think they think that they will uh, inherit eternal life just because they're children of abraham just knowing that that mindset um was within the um, Jewish nation, nation culture, and kind of like actually deeply embedded within their uh, religious understanding. Some of them, I thought maybe here Jonah too thought that he um, was being driven away from God. Yet he was still going to um, inherit the promise of Abraham and inherit eternal life. That was just my understanding of, or I think that's one way that you could potentially look at this, or it could be the fact that he literally had hope that he would look upon the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, personally, I think it's more of the latter than the former, because if you look at verse, you know, all the surrounding verses, like context, it's all talk about the, the here and now in the literal sense, right? He's covered by the waters, the floods surrounded him, you know, there were waves, the weeds wrapped around his wood. And it's just to me personally, it doesn't seem to make sense that it would be more of a, you know, like uh, what you were saying, the Jewish belief that just because he's a descendant of Abraham that he's going to be saved from this, you know, from his current situation or, you know, eternally his soul. But I think this is more of a physical thing because, you know, if you, because he, he mentioned Shoal here in the earlier verse, you know, it's it's known to be as a place of darkness, a place of death, a place where, you know, God can only reach out to you supposedly, but you can't reach out to him. And that's maybe why he's saying, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That I think he he knows that he's going to survive this. 
this belly of the fish. I think he, you know, like Mark, like Josh, Alex said, you know, the whole faith thing that he had the faith that God will deliver him from, from this, from the belly of the fish. I think, I, I think that this is more of a, you know, just looking at the context that it's more of the here and now, his current situation thing that, you know, like remember when Jesus Christ died in the cross um, and the clouds kind of covered up uh, the, the place where he died that, you know, there was that disconnect between Jesus and God, but God, we know God's everywhere. Right. But there was that disconnect uh, because, you know, the, I'm trying to say the, the light kind of went away, became very dark at that hour and everything. And Jesus felt that disconnect. And I think the same thing is happening here that, you know, like usually when we, you know, call out to God, we're kind of looking up into a, hoping to see a clear blue sky that we, you know, there's this, some kind of reference here about a blue sky and a connectivity to God directly where here he doesn't have that. And I think that's what he means here is that he's in this dark, cold, clammy place that he kind of feels that he's driven away from God, probably because of his poor choice making. I love how the foundation of our understanding of chapter two kind of changes how we review the, the majority of the chapter. Well, not the majority, some of the finer points of it. Kind of like I still think that his prayer of repentance happened while he was still in the water, and then God saved him by sending the whale to save him. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it seems like you're talking about his prayer of repentance could have potentially been within the belly of the whale, and then he says this prayer of thanksgiving. And so therefore I think that while he's still drowning and yet he still has this sense of, oh no, I'm about to die. I thought in verse four, I'm driven away from your sight. This was kind of for him an understanding of I'm about to die. Um, and But he still has hope that God is going to save him in the future. So it's just interesting, I think. Um, but like, I agree with you, like it could be um, that it could be viewed. Uh, there's no distinct, and that's kind of one of the things that's also mentioned here. There's or what I mentioned before, um, omission, right? It doesn't necessarily say when his prayer of repentance happened. It doesn't even necessarily mention whether or not he repented. There's a few things that are pointed out specifically. Um, this is, I think, we are in agreement that it's a prayer of thanksgiving. Um, and then in verse 9, I think Alex was going to talk about a certain vow that he made to God. Did he make a vow? Looking into the notes, the vow kind of takes you back to chapter one. I think you brought that up earlier, Serge. Well, it says the pagans made vows or the sailors. All I see from this whole chapter is uh, his faith in everything that's going on. Uh, Faith is a big word that stands out to me personally. The way he goes about describing where he is, what's going to come next, He's at a point where he he is ready to go to work. He's ready to to do the Lord's work. Um, and he's not, I don't see fear at all in this prayer. I don't know if you guys do or not, but I don't see Jonah having fear. I don't see Jonah having a worry. I see Jonah having uh, rejoicing. Um, I also wanted to bring up, I, I feel like this chapter is a lot more relatable to um, us as humans. I think we can put ourselves into chapter two more than I think we can put ourselves into chapter one. I know we spoke of an individual who always tries to, whatever the scripture says, I'm going to compare it to what is it telling me? What is it telling me? What can I compare it to? Um, oftentimes I, I do think like that and going to this, to, to chapter two, I can relate to this. I don't, 
obviously I'm not going to have a moment in my life when I'm about to die. I haven't yet, you know, I don't know my future. Um, Lord knows what's going to happen, but I've had moments where something was serious so much in my life that I had to sit and think about the Lord, um, think about my life and think about why I've been wasting my time or running or doing something other than what God wants me to do. And I really had to thank God for um, making me or helping me realize it. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what Jonah's doing too. Everything going against him, he, he realizes he realizes that he needs to serve the Lord. Yeah. Kind of like a quick run around, I guess. Yeah, I do agree that here it seems, you know, like you said, it, this is not really a joyous prayer. To me, the vibe I get is, you know, the prayer of Thanksgiving and he's at peace. I kind of have, I kind of, you know, reading the deeper, getting deeper into this specific chapter, uh, you kind of start, I kind of start to sense that he's at peace of what's happening in his life at this, you know, for now, what the fact that God did save him. And he's, you know, he's ready. It seems like he's ready to recommit himself to the Lord. Like he, you know, you have that peace in your heart when, when you kind of recommit yourself to the Lord. It might be a sad peace, uh, sad peace, or kind of like a sad moment in your life. But spiritually, you have like this over, uh, overflowing peace in your heart. You know that, yeah, I messed up, but everything's gonna be okay because God is on my side. And I feel like right now he's kind of having that sense of peace that. You know, like as we mentioned before, that God God will deliver him from this because he has turned back to the Lord at this time. Going back to verse 9, I realized I didn't actually answer the question Mark was asking me about the vow. But building up to it in verse 8, just picture, we try to picture in our mind what Jonah's saying here. And uh, if you read verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols. Uh, we understand how mighty God is. And um, the vain idols that people have is praying to gods that, you know, all the um, other other religions or whatever other goes on, pagans, they had their own, you know, the sun god and this and that. Are they going to save you in the moment of you drowning in water? And, and Serge, you brought that up, and it's a good example that they um, they pay regard to their idols, but it's in vain. It's in vain. There's... Um, there's, nothing's going to come out of it, but worthless, useless, that's they, what vain means. And then it says, forsake their hope of steadfast love. They, they forsake their hope. And then he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. So, uh, he's saying, I know the true God. I know you are the true God. And, and with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. So it's just kind of interesting how it all builds up but I, going back to what I have vowed I will pay um, for some reason I'm thinking he's talking about he knows he knows what God wants him to do and uh, he he has faith that he'll come out of this and that his vow will be going to Nineveh opinions um, verse 8 I was looking at it and just smiling specifically talking about forsaking He's like saying those who choose or who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake means to throw away or to cast away their hope of steadfast love. So like, and he's talking about how in God, there is a hope of, of which we all know and have come to know 
of steadfast love, of mercy and forgiveness and how amazing he is. Because Jonah himself knows to the point of how rebellious he was, he should have perished long ago. But he realizes that God is forever loving and uh, full of steadfast love. Um, and then I was just thinking about uh, vowed and kind of what we talked about again, a mission and how he doesn't, his prayer before it isn't mentioned as far as his, maybe his prayer of repentance um, or his cry out to God and like exactly what he said to God or what he thought to God. Um, so it, it could be, I think one of two things he vowed, I will pay as in when he first took on his service towards God you know, he kind of like when we bap- were baptized, we made a vow to follow God and to um, serve him. I mean, like when he kind of first heard his calling to be a prophet. Type yeah, of yeah. So therefore, you know, what I have vowed back in the past, I will continue in, in what I was because there was I didn't no even think about that. It, me too. I was just like thinking about it. Um, or potentially he made a vow to God while he was... Um, in the belly? In the belly of Sheol or in the belly of the whale, or in the belly of the water. Fish. (laughs) Use biblical terms. Fish. 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 Marine animal. Um, Maybe he made a vow to God, and we don't know what it was. So I think it could be one of those two, but it doesn't necessarily specify. And I don't think a vow to God is anything specifically new up to this point. Even in the Old Testament, we see people make vows to God um, in prayers, and they fulfill them. Or not. Or or not. What does it mean when it says salvation belongs to the I was Lord? just going to ask that, man. Why you always got to jump ahead <laughs> of me? Salvation belongs to the Lord. What does that mean? Just, just got to be like a judge, you know. I thought we all deserve salvation. De- delete everything he said from the record. Search. Do you have a question? I do. <laughs> salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, I've, I've been pondering on that. Statement. It's a very interesting statement that Jonah uh, says salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, you know, preparing for this uh, or re, you know studying this scripture, uh, to me personally, and you can agree to or disagree and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like um, that in in simple sense that it seems like God or the Lord He has the power to choose who is saved, who is not. But he gives, <clears throat> sorry, he gives everyone the opportunity to be saved because in scripture we read that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to have, you know, to be saved. Everyone has that choice. Everyone has that opportunity, but it's up to us to really choose God or not, right? It's up to us to really decide to, to commit our lives to him. You know, when I say that God has the power to choose, he does, He's but he's got a specific character that he's, he has to um, not has to uphold to, but he's got a specific character, kind of specific. He's not going to contradict himself in terms of, I don't want this person to be saved. Therefore, I'm not going to even give him a chance to be saved. Even though we all agree that Jonah deserves death. We all deserve death because we're all sinners. We're no better or worse than Jonah. But yeah, he gave Jonah so many times to turn back and he, and Jonah finally turned back. And I think that, you know, the criteria that the Lord chooses to save people based upon is like, like you already mentioned is faith. Is if a person believes in the Lord to be their savior, that salvation is with the Lord. It's not with some kind of idol. It's not on your own doing. It's not on something else. It is on the Lord. I find it interesting. I'm just laughing because 
he says this is the end of his prayer in uh, chapter two. And then chapter three, we see that he doesn't necessarily agree with that statement that he just made. I'm just foreshadowing because, you know, we know what's coming up ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting kind of how you mentioned salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, could be construed also. Um, sorry, my Russian's kicking in. Um as in uh, only God can save, no other God can save. If we look back to verse eight, when he talks about vain idols, that um, that's like his intellectual property. No other God can save, but the true God um, and that it belongs to him and he, he controls it and he does whatever he wants with it. Kind of like what you said, but it's, it's, it's of him. It pertains to him. If you talk about salvation, there's only one way that the only one thing that you can actually, or one person that you can link it to is God. The ultimate savior. Yep. I think he, going along with what you guys said, um, also he's just expressing also the power that God has, that salvation only comes from the powerful almighty God, the creator. So he's he's kind of showing the sovereignty of God. He's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. I think it's a cool term to say. Um, but ending this chapter... Kind of a short chapter, 10 verses. It's it's amazing how you can get so much information out of 10 verses out of Scripture, and you're not even into the full story of what's going to go on here and what Jonah's going to do yet. You're only just cracking open the beginning, and, and it's it's amazing how much we see out of one prayer. Um, it's a, one, one point of interest, too. Chapter 1 ends with, he was in the belly of a fish, and verse 10 ends with vomiting Jonah. So he didn't spit him out. He wasn't in the mouth of the fish. He was in the belly. To vomit is to pour out the contents of your stomach. Tasty. And then he had to go preach like that. Can you imagine that? <laughs> but that's for our next podcast. Yeah, this dude shows up smelling like fish. <laughs> like the belly of the Repent. fish. <laughs> or end up like me. Or there was probably a sea by where he was vomited out where he could wash himself a little bit. Maybe. No matter what you look like, what you smell like, what's going on, when you have God with you, his message, and you're working to spread his message, it just goes to show that he's the ultimate um, kind of, he's going to be the one that's producing everything that's going to happen, obviously. Um, no matter what you look like, you know, what what you smell like, what you've just been through, um, God will work through you. And that's the amazing part is he's... He can use anybody, no matter what you lack, no matter what you don't have, you know, uh, God will use you if you just open your heart up to him. Unfortunately, Jonah took a little while to open up, uh, running from God, and we still don't know exactly even why I don't, I think he was running. Was, did he have a fear of the city? And um, We'll find out in chapter four. Yeah, so, it, but you know, it's, he now understands what he needs to do. So yeah, and I like I kind of created this closing or this uh, kind of overall closing statement for this chapter for myself. But uh, I wrote that no matter your circumstances, God is in control and will save anyone who cries out to the Lord in faith. That's what I got. Simple overall from this chapter. I think the whole book of Jonah is also a story about God's mercy and how merciful he is. Like if I look at it from if anyone, any single one of us 
from the perspective of God was to have someone do the things and say the things that Jonah did, there would be no patience left. Um, but God is merciful and he's long suffering. Um, and, uh, we have a hope of steadfast love in him and salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen to that. Amen to that. Join us next time. Have a good day.